Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is taken from the reading we just heard in the Gospel of John. You may be seated. We begin with a word of prayer. Mighty Father, what a joy it is to know that you receive sinners into your presence. The dying and the rising of your Son, Jesus, you have forgiven and justified us and called us to be your own. And now, Lord, we pray today that as we hear your word, you would grant us your Holy Spirit, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. What sort of people does God call to preach his gospel? What sort of people does, does Jesus choose to spread the good news? It's a question I contemplate a lot this time of year. Uh, this last week in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, it was call day for our seminary. Now, if you're not aware of how this works, we have two seminaries in our church body, uh, and they have calls that they issue for. So this is where we train pastors, we raise them up, and then last week was like the day where we assign them churches to go out and preach. It's kind of like the NFL draft, but a little bit different. Uh, but it took place last week, and I love this service. I love listening to the sermons. I love uh, going back and thinking through my own call day and all this sort of stuff. But whenever you watch a service like this, or you watch an installation or an ordination service, you start to hear what's required of pastors. You start to hear the expectations that are placed upon pastors. You start to hear the qualifications of the character of what it means for someone to be a pastor. And I start to listen to that stuff, and it becomes, <laughs> becomes very intimidating for a pastor like me. You know, a sinful one. You start to listen to the list of things that are expected, and it will say things like, husband of one wife. The pastor has to be husband of one wife, which, by the way, I am. Uh, second, not given to much wine. Third, uh, you should also not be quarrelsome and be fighting all the time. And there's just, the list goes on and on. And I start to listen to the list, and I'm like, oh, man, I, I don't know. I don't know. I might be too sinful for this thing. I'm not sure I always live up to the standard that's laid out for the qualifications for pastors, and it becomes really intimidating. But I would venture to guess that I'm not the only person who's ever intimidated by this. I'm not the only pastor intimidated by this. Even so among us. I would venture to guess that when we all understand that we have the responsibility to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ, we're all a little bit intimidated by that uh, responsibility as well. See, pastors are given a special ministry, a special calling within the church, but they're not the only people who are supposed to talk about Jesus. That's the responsibility of all of us. In all of our vocations, and all of our responsibilities, and all of our relationships, we all have the responsibility to talk about the love and the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And I know that there are a lot of us here who are a bit hesitant to do this. And we're hesitant for a lot of reasons. But i got to figure one of the reasons that we are so often hesitant to do this is that we figure we are too sinful to speak about Jesus. And I think this because I hear people say it all the time. If people knew my past, they wouldn't listen to me. If people knew the struggles that I have in my life, they would give me no credence for speaking the gospel. If people knew just how sinful I was, and I know how sinful I am, <laughs> I don't think I'm worthy to do this. I really shouldn't be one to talk about this. I'm not qualified. 
and we look at our past sins and we look at our past experiences and we look at our current struggles and our guilt and our shame intimidate us into silence. It's like our consciences are trying to cancel the gospel from going forth from our lips, which is a very bad place to be in a world right now that is sort of marked by the intimidation of the cancel culture. You've heard of this thing, right? The cancel culture, it's like the big boogeyman buzzword right now. What we have going on in the culture right now is this sort of cultural intimidation towards those who speak out of line of what the culture wants them to say. It's sort of like, you know, a pandemic sweeping our nation. So somebody comes along, uh, they have a platform, and they say something that is either offensive or that offends somebody, and it's very good to mark that distinction. Not everything that offends somebody is actually offensive. That's a conversation for another time. Uh, but nonetheless, they say something that's bothersome. And so they're ridiculed, they're attacked, they're shouted down. Their jobs are threatened. Sometimes their jobs are taken away. Reputations are ruined. And the past of the speaker is examined and exhumed and brought forth to show just how unworthy of speaking in public those people are. Their past sins are brought up to prevent them from saying anything else. Now, it's easy for us to point the finger and say, how dare those people use such tactics? But you've got to recognize this sort of thing is happening on either side of the aisle, the right and the left. Everybody is seeking to cancel the opponent. It's been going on in the culture forever. It's nothing new. I suppose the newness of the cancel culture in which we live in is something like this. Historically, uh, when you have been canceled, it's typically by some sort of like authoritarian regime that comes in to silence you, to intimidate you into silence. Things have shifted now, and it's more of a, a movement among uh, the masses. The crowds are the ones silencing people now. But nonetheless, we have always seen sort of intimidation to silence people who say things that are offensive. We even see this taking place in the history of the church. Can you believe that? Uh, you see this sort of thing taking place in the history of the church when the power of structures of the church were threatened. I was thinking about it this past week, the way the cancel culture used to work back in the medieval era, uh, when the church would silence people by excommunicating them and, and burning them at the stake and all that sort of thing. And I was reminded of one sort of tragic, but a little bit sort of a humorous tragic story of the guy John Wycliffe. Does anybody know who John Wycliffe is? First guy to translate the Bible into English. Uh, Wycliffe, we might consider him a pre-reformer. If you think of the Protestant Reformation that took place in the 16th century, uh, Wycliffe was a, was a forerunner of this. He's around in the 14th century. He's a British guy. He's a priest. Uh, and he begins to say that the common people should have the word of God in their own language. So he translates it into English. He also begins to question the way that the church is teaching the sacraments, what it is, what it's supposed to do. Further then, he starts to say that, you know, Anybody can share the gospel with anybody else. And he has his own group of followers called the Lollards. Uh, and he's a very influential guy. And he upsets the church. So they excommunicated him. Not very effectively, apparently. They excommunicated him five times. <laughs> they tried to silence him. None of them stuck, apparently. It didn't work. He kept doing his work. He kept preaching. And he always considered himself a faithful child of the church. Well, Wycliffe ends up dying. He's not, uh, he's not burned at the stake, but instead he dies actually in the mass. He goes to church, and he dies as a stroke in the service. And so they bury him and honor him there in England. 
But the Catholic Church is not pleased with this. They wanted to be the ones to silence Wycliffe. So what do they do? <laughs> this is the funny part. Uh, they go and exhume his body, and then they burn him at the stake, and then they scatter his ashes into a river, you know, to silence him. That's the funny part. Uh, I guess it's sort of an intimidation factor for his followers. Don't mess with us or the same thing is going to happen uh, to you. Uh, why do I tell you this story? Because I want you to hear how there are always forces at work in this world seeking to intimidate the preaching of the gospel into silence. Sometimes they are external from a cancel culture or from an intimidating power authority regime over the top of us. But sometimes it's because of our own guilt and our own shame. I mentioned at the beginning, our own guilty consciences are seeking to cancel the gospel from coming forth from our lips. And the devil is happy to use outer or inner threats to prevent us from sharing the gospel. So who is to share the gospel? If we're too sinful to do it, nobody's going to listen without intimidation. Who's going to go forth and actually do this thing? Well, it's interesting, uh, Jesus actually addressed this question at a breakfast he held about 2,000 years ago with the disciples. We heard about that breakfast this morning. After Jesus has risen from the dead one morning, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he looks out and he sees his disciples fishing. And he invites them to come out of the boat and join him on the shore, and there he, he, present, uh, pre excuse me, he prepares breakfast for them. And they have a breakfast of fish. It's probably the best fish you've ever had in your whole life. There is Jesus, the risen Lord, preparing a meal to share with his disciples, giving us a picture of the resurrection and what we will enjoy when we see Jesus face to face. It's this glorious scene. And when they have finished eating, Jesus takes Peter alongside himself. And he has a conversation. Now, this conversation is very important for our question. But in order to get a real understanding of what's going on here, we need to think about the last few days of Peter's life. Peter's had quite a roller coaster of a, of a week. Uh, Peter was with Jesus the night on which he was betrayed. And that night, Jesus told the disciples, you guys are going to betray me. And Peter stood up and he said, Lord, even if everybody here betrays you, I will never betray you. And Jesus tells him, listen, you're going to betray me three times. You're going to deny me three times. For the rooster crows. Peter says, may it never be. And all the disciples agree with him. Well, about two hours later, they're in the garden. And sure enough, here come all the soldiers. And all the disciples, big brave disciples, are scattered for fear. Except for Peter. Peter follows Jesus. Jesus is arrested. He's taken on trial. And Peter kind of stays hidden in the back. But he follows the cohort as they make their way to the trial. And then he's sitting outside the court area in the, in the courtyard there warming himself by the fire. And what happens? He gets grilled. He gets accused. He gets accused of being friends with Jesus, of being a follower of Jesus. Peter denies it vehemently three times, calls down curses on himself. May God send me to hell, is essentially what he's saying, uh, if I was a friend of Jesus. He denies it completely. And then the rooster crows. Luke records it this way. And immediately, while he was still speaking, that is, while he was in the midst of denying Jesus, the rooster crowed. Here's the kicker. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
You can imagine that look was hard for Peter to shake. That look was burned into Peter's conscience. You know what it's like to have a sin branded in your conscience, don't you? Maybe you don't, but it's, it's something like this, like you're having a good time, your day is going well, everything is happy, but then you hear something, a word, a song, a, a conversation, and it triggers the guilt and the shame, and suddenly you can't shake it. Suddenly you just, it's weighing down heavy on you again, again. And I can imagine for Peter, that's what that morning breakfast was like after the resurrection. He's there with Jesus, he's having a wonderful time, he's full of joy and happiness, and then he gets a glance from Jesus, and suddenly he has sort of this PTSD of that night when he betrayed Jesus, and that look and that guilt just weighed heavily on him. You can imagine that breakfast for Peter was a mixture of hope fulfilled, but also of triggered guilt. His sin was just too much, and it was, it was crushing. Which is why I think Peter was probably utterly astonished by the conversation that he had with Jesus after breakfast was over. I imagine he was not prepared at all for what Jesus was about to say to him. This is what, this is what happened. John records it this way. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Well, he said to him, then feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Think about it. Who does Jesus choose to go out and feed his sheep, to preach his gospel? Peter, the betrayer, the denier, the great sinner who turns his back on his friends when it matters most. That's who Jesus chose, a sinner. Notice what Jesus does not say to Peter. He does not say, Simon, do you love me? Then why did you deny me? Why did you betray me? Why didn't you speak up for me? What good is a coward and a sinner like you to me and my cause? If I can't trust you to uh, stand up for me when it counts, how can I trust you in the future? And Jesus would say, then you are canceled as my disciple. Your past is qualified. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even hint at it. He says to Peter, Feed my sheep. You are the one I'm choosing to preach my word. I'm not, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter, holding your past against you. No, I'm forgiving your past and sending you out to proclaim my death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. I'm sending you out to proclaim the very forgiveness, Jesus says, that I give to you right now. See, Jesus is not going to allow Peter's past or his conscience or anything to cancel or disqualify him from spreading the gospel. You and I might look at Peter and say, man, that guy should not be doing this sort of work. And Jesus looks at him and says, why? I want him to feed my sheep. So this gets to the answer of our question. Who does Jesus choose to spread his gospel? Sinners. Sinners. And I think for two reasons. One, he doesn't have any other options. <laughs> That's all he's got. And two, 
By sending out sinners to preach the forgiveness of sins, he's actually showing the gospel at work. He's actually demonstrating what the gospel does. The gospel does not hold your past against you. The the gospel does not hold your present sins and struggles against you. The gospel does not hold your future sins against you. The gospel forgives them all. You are forgiven on account of Christ Jesus, and those sins do not prevent you, one, from being a part of the family of God, and two, of doing the work that Christ wants done in his kingdom. None of these things can prevent Christ from calling you to share his good news, to preach his gospel, to go forth and proclaim the very message that I get to proclaim to you today as one sinner to another. Your sins are forgiven all on account of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because of his cross, your guilt and your shame, your loud conscience, the cancel culture, the assaults of the devil, all of that is canceled. You are forgiven. You are free to go forth. See, here's the reality. Salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, always comes to us on the lips of another. It's always found on the lips of someone else for us. And that other (laughs) always ends up being a sinner. So the gospel goes from sinful lips into sinful ears into sinful hearts. But it changes those lips and those ears and those hearts from being merely sinful to being forgiven. And that is who Christ calls. Not merely sinners, but forgiven sinners. Lo and behold, that is what you are even today. You are those forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ so that you too might go out and proclaim his mercies and his good news into this dark world that would seek to silence you. Christ's word, his call, his forgiveness, drowns out any other accusation that may come your way. You forgiven sinners, like me, go forth into this world with its bullying and its aggression that wants to lord your sins over you with the word that silences it all. I forgive you your sins. Go, therefore, says Jesus, and feed the world with my salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the call that you have placed upon all of our lives. Whatever our vocations, Lord, you have given us to others so that we might proclaim your forgiving mercies in their lives. Lord, we are sinners, and yet you have seen fit to call us to be your own. Continue to forgive us into life everlasting when we will be free finally from all sin, guilt, and shame. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that your gospel would dominate in our ears and in our hearts so that it would always be found on our lips for the sake of others. In your name we pray all of this.